The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday or possibly longer if necessary. The House will return Wednesday and stay in session through Friday or possibly longer if necessary. This week in the House, the House will return on Wednesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider 12 bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday and Friday, says the schedule, quote, additional legislative items related to FY 2024 appropriations are expected, end quote. We'll talk more about that in a moment. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Monday and will convene at 3 p.m. After the prayer and the pledge, Maryland Democrat Senator Ben Cardin will be recognized to deliver Washington's farewell address. The first vote is set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on a motion to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jacqueline Becerra to be the U.S. District Judge for the Southeastern, I'm sorry, the Southern District of Florida. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see action on the nominations of David Seymour Leibowitz to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Florida, and Hampton Y. Dellinger to be Special Counsel in the Office of Special Counsel for the term of five years. Now an oldie but a goodie, Julie Sue is back. You may recall that last year we succeeded in helping to block the confirmation of Deputy Secretary of Labor Julie Sue to serve as Secretary of Labor. West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin declared his opposition publicly, and Arizona Democrat-turned-independent Kirsten Sinema was believed to also oppose the nomination. So Majority Leader Schumer never advanced the nomination to the floor for a vote of the full Senate. Consequently, she's been serving instead as acting secretary since then. According to a notice last week, the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee will vote again on her nomination on Tuesday. Now, here's the odd thing. There's been no indication that she's won over either Manchin or Cinema or any of her other possibly silent Democrat opponents since last year. So why the committee is going to vote on her nomination again and set her up for a floor vote is beyond me. Sue set a record last year. On July 20, she had been waiting 127 days for a confirmation vote on the floor of the Senate. That's longer than any nominee has waited for a confirmation vote when his or her party controlled the Senate and the White House. That was 221 days ago. As of today, her record now stands at 348 days. Like Cal Ripken's consecutive games played streak, every day that goes by, she sets another new record. And like a Timex watch, she apparently takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Stay tuned. We'll see if she ever gets a floor vote. Now to non-citizen voting. I told you last week that we were going to start paying more attention to this sleeper issue, non-citizen voting. And voila, just like that, we start getting news stories from around the country on this topic. On Wednesday of last week, a New York appeals court rejected a New York City municipal law that permits non-citizens to vote in local elections. The law had been approved in 2021 and was slated to go into effect in 2022. Under the terms of the law, roughly 800,000 people would have become eligible to vote in municipal elections. That is, they could have voted for mayor and city council. The law never took effect because of legal challenges. Wrote the appeals court, quote, We determine that this local law, 
was enacted in violation of the New York State Constitution and municipal home rule law, and thus must be declared null and void, end quote. So, a victory for the good guys. Now to the border crisis. The Biden administration has finally figured out it has a serious problem on the southern border. So many illegal aliens have crossed the border in the last three years that it's hurting Biden's poll numbers among independents. And that simply cannot be allowed to happen. The problem is he's got a problem on his left flank. The hard left of his party supports his open borders policy and wants it left alone. So he's got a push-me-pull-you problem. If he now tries to get tougher on the border, he may lose a vote on the hard left for every vote he picks up in the center. Consequently, the political types in the Biden administration were not at all happy when the so-called border deal they thought they had worked out in the Senate collapsed. So they've picked up where the border deal collapsed, and on Wednesday, the House organ of the Democrat Party, that is the New York Times, dutifully reported that, quote, Biden mulling plan that could restrict asylum claims at the border, unquote, which contains this remarkable opening line, quote, President Biden is considering executive action that could prevent people who cross illegally into the United States from claiming asylum, several people with knowledge of the proposal said Wednesday. The story continued, the move would suspend long-time guarantees that give anyone who steps onto U.S. soil the right to ask for safe haven, end quote. Wait just a minute. President Biden is considering executive action? For weeks and then months, we were told by the left that President Biden had no options available to him on the executive action front. He had to have congressional action to be able to do anything. We knew otherwise, of course. In fact, it was largely the executive actions President Biden took during his first days in office that set the stage for the open borders policy that led to the surge of illegal immigration in the first place. Speaker Johnson didn't waste any time calling Biden out for the obvious election year gimmick. In fact, that's precisely what Johnson called it before challenging Biden, saying of Biden, quote, he can show he's serious, unquote by reinstating former President Trump's remain in Mexico policy, ending the abuse of parole, and changing asylum policy. While Democrats in Washington scrambled to get as far away from Biden's open borders policy as they could, the real-life consequences of that policy and all it entails reared its ugly head in Georgia, where a 22-year-old woman named Lakin Riley was murdered allegedly by a 26-year-old male illegal alien named Jose Ibarra. Ibarra, a Venezuelan national, had first been arrested by CBP agents on September 8, 2022, after he crossed the border illegally near El Paso, Texas, but had been paroled and released for further processing, according to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. He was arrested a year later on September 14, 2023, in New York City by NYPD officers. He was charged then with acting in a manner to injure a child under the age of 17 and a motor vehicle license violation. But because New York City is a sanctuary city, he was released before a federal immigration detainer could be issued. I would not be at all surprised if the name Jose Ibarra became as well-known in the 2024 campaign as the name 
Willie Horton became in the 1988 campaign. For those of you too young to recognize that name, I'll give it to you again. Willie Horton. Go ahead and Google it now, then read about him later. Now to the Mayorkas impeachment trial. On Tuesday of last week, 13 conservative Republican senators sent to Minority Leader Mitch McConnell a letter urging him to join us in our efforts to oppose Democrat efforts to shirk their constitutional duty. The letter was signed by Senators Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Eric Schmidt, Rick Scott, Ron Johnson, J.D. Vance, Roger Marshall, Josh Hawley, Mike Braun, Tommy Tuberville, Ted Budd, Cynthia Lummis, and Marsha Blackburn. The letter suggests the Democrats will try to vote to table the articles of impeachment once the trial begins and goes on to say that that would be an action rarely contemplated and never taken by the United States Senate in the history of our republic. Further, says the letter, quote, it remains to be seen if the Senate rules will even allow us to brush aside our duty in this manner. But one thing is sure, if a similar strategy was contemplated by Senate Republicans when we were in the majority with a Republican occupying the White House, the opposition would be fierce and the volume from Democrats would be deafening, end quote. In a separate letter, Senator Rick Scott of Florida wrote to Vice President Kamala Harris, who also serves as president of the Senate. Scott urged Harris to preside over the trial instead of letting Senator Patty Murray, the Senate president pro tem, serve in that capacity. Quote, our states and cities face an ongoing and widespread crisis due to the flood of illegal immigrants streaming across our southern and northern borders and moving freely within the interior of the homeland, Scott wrote. As the President of the Senate, you are the appropriate constitutional presiding officer to oversee the impeachment trial of Secretary Mayorkas, and I encourage you to fulfill that role when the Senate reconvenes later this month. We'll see first thing this week how Schumer decides to move forward. Now to the follow-up on to Alexei Navalny's death. Let me set some context for you. After a meeting with Vladimir Putin in June of 2021, Joe Biden told the International Press Corps that he had warned Putin that if Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny were to die in prison, quote, I made it clear to him that I believe the consequences of that would be devastating for Russia, end quote. In the wake of the announcement of Navalny's death in prison a week ago Friday, White House reporters began reminding Biden of his 2021 threat and then asking Biden and senior White House aides what exactly those devastating consequences would be. On Tuesday, the White House declared that President Biden would issue a major sanctions package against Russia later in the week. On Friday, Biden followed through announcing a sanctions package that contained hundreds of new sanctions against Russia, more than 500 different sanctions, in fact. They were levied against people connected to Navalny's death, and they were also sanctions on Russia's defense and financial sectors. Said Biden, quote, Today I am announcing more than 500 new sanctions against Russia for the ongoing war of conquest on Ukraine and for the death of Alexei Navalny who was a courageous anti-corruption activist and Putin's fiercest opposition leader. These sanctions will target individuals connected to Navalny's imprisonment, as well as Russia's financial sector, defense industrial base, procurement network, and sanctions evaders across multiple continents. 
They will ensure Putin pays an even steeper price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. But the Wall Street Journal reported later the very same afternoon that, quote, U.S. officials privately concede the sanctions are likely to land a limited blow. It continued, this latest move against the Kremlin also demonstrates the limited options the Biden administration has to respond to the regime's escalating aggression. Some administration officials have privately played down the potential impact of the new measures and indicated the package on the whole focuses mostly on eroding Moscow's ability to sidestep existing sanctions and fund its war. Analysts also express doubt that the latest round will have much impact. End quote. In fact, <clears throat> if the Biden administration wanted to have a real impact on Russia, it would sanction Russian oil sales. Right now, the Putin regime is still selling oil on the international market, earning billions of dollars that it then uses to fund its war in Ukraine. Kentucky Republican Congressman Andy Barr told senior Treasury officials last week at a hearing of the House Financial Services Committee that, quote, we are giving huge sanctions relief to Russia's war machine. Why is the Biden administration greenlighting billions of dollars that fund Moscow's war in Ukraine, even as you ask Congress to provide supplemental budget funding for Ukraine? That's a fair question. Now to the emergency supplemental and aid to Ukraine. There is no movement to report on the emergency supplemental spending bill, also known as the National Security slash Foreign Aid Supplemental. It's still stuck in House limbo with Speaker Johnson so far unwilling to put it on the floor, even though, or maybe more accurately, precisely because it would most assuredly pass were it to get to the floor. Meanwhile, Saturday marked the two-year anniversary of Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's decision to launch his brutal invasion of Ukraine, the first time since World War II that the Russian army has crossed its border with a European country. Now to government funding. Funding for the VA, military construction, transportation, housing and urban development, agriculture and rural development, and energy and water expires at, on Friday at midnight. The House and Senate have yet to pass appropriations bills to keep those agencies running. Funding for the rest of the government runs out a week later at midnight on Friday, March 8. On Wednesday of last week, the House Freedom Caucus sent a letter to Speaker Johnson talking about what had passed the House Appropriations Committee. Ten of the 12 bills have passed on the House floor and been sent to the Senate with as they wrote, quote, hundreds of amendments considered and adopted, end quote. The bills, they said, quote, spent at or below the actual text of the Fiscal Responsibility Act, the FRA, offered a meaningful step toward restoring regular order and presented an opportunity to reduce spending and reverse many of President, Bush, uh, President Biden's harmful policies, end quote. The HFC continued, apprising Johnson of their fear that, quote, we anticipate text for likely omnibus legislation that we fear will be released at the latest possible moment before being rushed to the floor for a vote, end quote. The HFC wanted an update on the status of the ongoing negotiations and then listed a series of policy riders the HFC wanted included in the spending legislation, including and I'm just going to list a few to give you a sense of what they were talking about. Quote, reducing Homeland Security Secretary 
Alejandro Mayorkas's salary to zero dollars. Quote, defund the Pentagon's illegal abortion travel fund. Quote, defund gender transition surgeries or gender-affirming care paid by taxpayer dollars. Quote, defund Dr. Anthony Fauci's gain-of-function research. Quote, prohibit funding for Biden's student loan bailout schemes. And, quote, prevent billions of dollars from being used to construct a new massive Pentagon-sized headquarters for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, end quote. The letter closed with this question to Speaker Johnson, quote, if we are not going to secure significant policy changes or even keep spending below the caps adopted by bipartisan majorities less than one year ago, why would we proceed when we could instead pass a year-long funding resolution that would save Americans $100 billion in year one, end quote. What they're talking about there is the possibility of passing a full-year continuing resolution. Under the terms of a provision in the FRA, that is the debt limit deal struck last spring between President Biden and then-Speaker McCarthy, if all 12 appropriations bills have not passed and been signed into law by April 30 of 2024, then there will be an automatic 1% reduction in spending applied across the board to all government funding programs. That 1% cut in spending would amount to about $100 billion, and it would fall more heavily on the non-defense side of spending. So that's the HFC's backup position. If we can't get the policy riders we want, then at the very least, we should get the spending reductions we want. So let's just pass a full-year continuing resolution. Speaker Johnson responded by holding a conference call with the members of the House Republican Conference Friday night to update them on the progress of the negotiations over the funding bills. He told them not to expect any home runs. Instead, he said we'd see a lot of singles and doubles, solid policy wins in key areas. On Sunday afternoon, Senate Majority Leader Schumer released a letter he had sent to his Senate Democrat colleagues in which he excoriated House Republicans for, in his words, not being serious. Unless Republicans get serious, the extreme Republican shutdown will endanger our economy, raise costs, lower safety, and exact untold pain on the American people. Speaker Johnson pushed back. On Sunday afternoon, President Biden, clearly frustrated, invited the four congressional leaders, Senators Schumer and McConnell and Congressman Johnson and Jeffries, to come to the White House on Tuesday to discuss government funding and the emergency supplemental spending bill. Now to the Biden crime family saga. In a bold maneuver, last Tuesday, Hunter Biden's attorneys launched a widespread counterattack against the special counsel and the multiple charges Hunter Biden faces, filing nine motions seeking to gut or dismiss the entire case against him. The lawyers accused IRS investigators of illegally leaking his private tax records, accused the special counsel of caving to political pressure to indict Biden, and accused the Department of Justice of improperly appointing a special counsel in the first place. The motions argue that the case brought by special counsel David Weiss is defective for multiple reasons, including that Biden is being targeted for what his lawyers call selective and vindictive prosecution, driven by what they call extremist Republicans. Says the motion, quote, politics have tainted this prosecution and there is no constitutional option but to dismiss the case, unquote. 
Weiss replied to similar motions filed in Delaware, saying political pressures had nothing to do with his prosecutorial decisions. Quote, the charges in this case are not trumped up because of former President Trump. They are instead a result of the defendant's own choices and were brought in spite of, not because of, any outside noise made by politicians, end quote. In the new filings, Biden's attorneys argue that the failed plea agreement on the gun charge should be considered Biden. Most peculiarly, the filing charges that Weiss was illegally appointed as special counsel because DOJ policies require that special counsels must be appointed from, quote, outside of government. On this matter, Biden's attorney is exactly correct. We'll see how this works out for Biden. While the judge reviews those motions in Los Angeles, Hunter Biden will appear on Wednesday for a transcribed interview with members and staff of the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. Now let's talk 2024. Former President Donald Trump won the South Carolina primary on Saturday, capturing 59.8% of the vote. Former South Carolina Governor and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley's 39.5%. It remains to be seen how big will be Trump's win on Super Tuesday, which is a week from tomorrow. Here's the trouble for Trump right now. A Fox News analysis found that 59% of Haley's voters in South Carolina say they wouldn't vote for Trump if he's the GOP nominee. 59% of 39.5% is 23.3%. If 23.3% of Republican voters nationwide don't vote for Trump in the fall campaign, he will very likely lose to the Democrat nominee, even if it's Joe Biden. Consequently, Trump's task now is to unite the party behind his candidacy. Stay tuned. Now to the Jenny Beth Show. Episode 54 of the Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday. It features Jenny Beth's conversation with Chris Chavez of Turning Point Action and Coalitions.com. It's a short but fascinating discussion of how best to establish relationships and build coalitions. Highly recommended. And that's our Washington Report for this week.